I'm Taryn Ward. And I'm Stephen Jones. And this is Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. We're taking a closer look at the core issues around social media, including the existing social media landscape, to better understand the role social media plays in our everyday lives and society. In recent episodes, we've been looking at the rise and fall of several social media empires. Last time, we took a closer look at how Twitter started. And this time, we'll focus specifically on what came after 2010 through to Elon Musk's purchase of the platform. We'll start, as always, with a core question. In this case, a continuation of last week's, which was, what made Twitter, Twitter? By 2011, the platform had reached 100 million users, and six months later, it had grown by another 40% to 140 million users. We talked last time about the role that Twitter, more than any other social network, plays in sharing experiences of significant current events. Perhaps the best-known example of this was the Arab Spring. This topic is worthy of its own episode, but for a quick recap, the Arab Spring was a protracted series of protests, uprisings, and armed rebellions that spread across much of the Arab world in the early 2010s. Beginning in Tunisia in December of 2010, protests arose in Algeria, Oman, Yemen, Jordan, Egypt, Syria, and Morocco by January of 2011 while the Tunisian government was overthrown that same month. Over the next few months, we saw protests continue and expand throughout much of the Arab world. And I remember watching this in in real time, and I think much of the West's perception was based on the protests in Tahrir Square in Cairo, Egypt, which captured our attention through the mainstream media. And it it certainly appears that in that that case, social media played a, a really crucial role in sharing uh, protesters sharing not only what was happening, but also about going to the protests and you know sharing video and, and um, photos in, in real time. The volume of that was so great that it became really difficult for the government to actually suppress information about what, what was actually going on. Yes, I, I remember that too. I think that's I, I think it did play an important role and it is worth examining and I'm sure researchers will will continue to look at this for years to come. But I think it's worth remembering, that internet and as a result, social media penetration really varied amongst the countries that were impacted by the Arab Spring. So, you know, in somewhere like Bahrain, where it was 88%, that that's a different story maybe than somewhere like Yemen and Libya, where the percentage of people using these platforms was much lower. That's not to take anything away from, from the role that it played at all. But I think it's important that, you know, especially for people who were in the West at that time, not to assume that everybody was walking around with a smartphone watching this unfold on Twitter. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that is really important. Part of the narrative from Twitter and Meta um, about the Arab Spring was that the implication, at least, that it wouldn't have been possible uh, and that these protests wouldn't have happened if, if, if social media wasn't available to the press testers. And... There were certainly examples where it was really, really important, but there were other examples where it couldn't possibly have played much of a role because, as you just said, they didn't have that that access. And I think we have to be very wary all the time about what social media says about itself um, because at the end of the day, it's often a little bit self-serving, right? And, and I think as time has gone by, I mean, you said about academics, I think there has been um, a reasonable amount of research done on this. And um, as time goes by, particularly from Middle Eastern scholars, there is, I think, more, a more critical approach taken um, to the 
to the work that social the impact that social media had in the in the workings of those of those protests. What do you what do you think, Taryn? I mean, you were you were probably a more avid social media user at that time than than I was, I would think. Certainly on Twitter. I think all of that's fair. I think one thing to remember about, you know, the value of how social media companies see themselves and present themselves has its own value, but it's not maybe what you think it is. It's not, it's not about the truth of that assertion. It's really about what it tells us that they want us to believe and and how they see themselves. And so I think remembering that when we think about, you know, what role do they want us to think they played in the Arab Spring. And, you know, at the time, I remember watching this all play out and thinking, you know, everybody seems really confident about how this is going to go and how this is going to play out, but we don't know. So there there was a lot of hope and there were, there was a lot of feeling at the time, especially in the US, that this was going to be this great sweeping movement and it was just going to be better for everyone. Um, and we know now, of course, that it's a little bit more complicated than that. And, you know, let's not forget that there have been a lot of well-documented well-documented complaints about some of these larger social media networks working with governments to target dissidents, to suppress free speech and protest movements. And, you know, they, (laughs) it would be difficult for any one of them to claim that they only did the right thing during this period of time and never made any mistakes. And I think we have to remember that too, because it, it gives us, it's an opportunity to think about the amount of power these platforms have. And whether it turns out well or not is often not really up to them. But it's it's a lot of it's a lot of power to give them. Yeah, it, it really is. I think that's a that's an excellent that's an excellent point and a good place to end this. As I said, I think we could have um, probably an entire series about um, these issues and certainly some detailed episodes. But for now, we're going to move on. Um, and when we talked about the rise and fall of um, Facebook, we did talk about the purchases made, most notably probably WhatsApp and Instagram. Twitter was certainly less acquisitive, but in 2012, it bought um, a relatively small company called Vine um, and ended up releasing that app in, in 2013. And it was extremely popular. I know that my kids were on it and my youngest was particularly unhappy when it was uh, was closed down and she won't mind me saying so <laughs> well the good news is your youngest was not alone um in fact elon musk ran a poll after he took over and asked whether vine should come back whether they should bring back vine and nearly five million people voted and something like 70 percent said yes <laughs> so apparently x formerly known as twitter is working on making that happen which I'm sure will make Natalia and um, all of her age group very, very happy. It's an interesting move for uh, for Twitter at this point, right? Because obviously they didn't feel that they needed to. It wasn't like core to their business back um, uh, when they closed it down. Um, and perhaps the cynical and heaven forfend that we would consider ourselves to be cynical might think. That that's because a new Vine might compete well against Instagram and, and TikTok, uh, which will be a subject of a future episode. What what do you think the motivation is here, Taryn? I think that's probably some of it. I think I, the, Elon Musk has received a lot of positive feedback on his responsiveness, um, whether it's somebody who's tweeting about a problem they're having with their account 
or a new suggestion or a new idea. I think people really like this idea that he's out there, you know, addressing these issues and, and trying to make things work. In this case, though, I would suggest that it may indicate a lack of confidence in the existing offering and a lack of a really solid plan on how to move forward. Because bringing back Vine and trying to go down the road of competing with Instagram and TikTok is is sort of a very different thing than what what Twitter is focused on or X is focused on at the moment. So to me, I see this and I think mm, maybe they don't really have a plan and they're not sure where they're going. So they're just kind of doing that thing where they throw a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. And I, I, and I think it was important to raise this because of that core question we have, which is what made Twitter Twitter? And it was, as we've said before, I think it was snappy. It was quick. It was extraordinarily immediate sharing of sometimes inane, but often very consequential uh, events like the one we just talked about with the the, the protests in, in the Arab Spring. So that's not to say that Vine wasn't popular and important to the people who used it, but it, it's hard to see that it's core to Twitter's business and what we see as, as what has made it successful. Whereas with Instagram, it was actually much easier to see that, right? It was just a different way of sharing your daily experiences and updating people with, you know, what you saw at the time they purchased it. Obviously, it's changed over time. Uh, and WhatsApp also made sense because it was a messaging program and it connects people and provided a huge amount of data to to Facebook. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that you hit the nail on the head. It does feel a bit like, well, we can do this because we have the IP. So let's see what we can we can make of it. And, you know, this people seem to like this right now, even if it isn't core to what we are the bulk of our users do. And to be fair, Twitter needs to see Twitter or X needs to see some growth. And, you know, although I can't say that Vine was the thing that did it back then, not long after this purchase, they did see some significant growth. Right. Absolutely. In September 2013, the company's data showed they had 200 million users sending 400 million tweets a day, with nearly 60% of those tweets being sent from, from mobile devices. Um, but not everything was going well. Um, the same year, Twitter launched hashtag music for iPhone. And to be honest, I actually had no idea this had happened until we were doing the research for this, this episode, which probably gives you an idea about how well it went. Apparently, it was intended for music discovery. People would post new bands and, and whatever. But you couldn't actually play the music without an outside subscription to either Spotify or uh, radio. And I think we can agree, since I don't think it's around anymore, it didn't really catch on. Taryn, did, did you know this had happened or even use it? I have a vague memory of, of this all happening. Um, I think it may have coincided with actually the birth of one of our children. So I think it was about that same period when my brain was just a little <laughs> foggy. I was you know, more sleep deprived than usual. So I, I can't say that I have a very clear memory of using this, but I definitely think it's safe to say it was, if not a flop, not, not a huge success because it's, it's not something that has continued. Yeah. And I mean, I think because super apps are part of Elon's plan, it does sort of say that, you know, you, if you want to, people to use your service or, or engage in other types of activity, you do have to plan that carefully um, and make sure that it's simple for them. And, you know, that obviously this one, this example was not well executed uh, at a time when other things were going well for Twitter. 
Yes. And, and for that reason, and I think a few others, by 2015, a number of industry observers sort of felt that Twitter was over or it was nearly over um, and commented that the period of huge growth had come to an end or was coming to an end. And, you know, I think there was a general sense that maybe that was true for people who were using the platform regularly. But of course, this didn't account for the impact that Donald Trump would have, either through his presidential campaign or through his actual presidency. Yeah, Taryn, no discussion of Twitter, certainly during this period, but probably no discussion of Twitter, full stop, is complete without a conversation about um, Donald Trump. The most famous or perhaps infamous tweeter, at least until the um, the arrival of Elon as CEO, and Trump was a very active tweeter. Um, here are some stats, which I, I managed to pull together for this uh, podcast. 59,553 tweets and retweets. Of those, 46,919 were original tweets. He had 88,936,841 followers. He received, and I'm going to shorten this one, 389 million retweets, 1.6 billion likes, and the famous last tweet from the uh, original Donald Trump account was, and I quote, to all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. And that was sent on January 8th, 2021. And I think, you know, it's not unknown to all of our listeners that shortly after that, his account was terminated by Twitter, something we'll talk about perhaps a bit later. Mm -hmm. 46,000 original tweets. That's that's really unbelievable. And it's it's difficult in this Jeez. in this one episode to really capture the impact that that Trump had on Twitter if you didn't live it yourself. So Trump tweeted about Lockheed Martin on the 22nd of December, 2016, for example. And this, this tweet came out after the market had closed. The very next trading day, Lockheed Martin stock price dropped by 2%. And just for, for context, that means that its market value dropped by over $1 billion. So this one tweet really, really had a huge impact. Now, it, I'm not arguing that the other 46,000 had had quite the same impact, but <laughs> but many of them did have have a very very big impact, and and so I think when we we talk about Twitter, you're right, we can't really talk about it during this period without without addressing some of these things. Academics have have studied the impact of President Trump's tweets on the stock market more broadly, and I'm sure we'll continue to do so. But you know, so far, they found that the U.S. stock market tends to decline over the first 30 minutes following his publishing a tweet, and that trading volume and volatility are significantly higher after a tweet. They also found that tweets affiliated with topics trade war and border security were followed by negative returns on the S&P 500, increased volatility, increased trading volume, significant decrease in the Hang Seng Index, and a significant increase in the gold price. That's a lot. To, that's a lot of control to have, not just from Twitter, but but through Donald Trump on Twitter. And again, 46,000 tweets, over 88 million followers. It's a huge impact. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, famously, uh, Taylor Swift will tell you that Swifties can achieve anything. But but the the impact of Donald Trump, and let's face it, Lockheed Martin is a bastion of the U.S. defense industry, and I think it is it's remarkable that um, that a, a president elect would write a tweet and remove a billion dollars from one of the U.S.'s major defense contractors' value. Like that, I, I can't think of another time when that that has happened. I mean, I'm sure there have been president considered presidential opinions about defense contracts, which probably impacted stock prices of defense contractors. That's reasonable. But it takes literally 30 seconds to tweet. And we all know there was no review process involved in that. And that has a huge, that causes a huge problem. And I, and I think, you know, as you said, every time he tweets, it impacts the stock market. And I think a lot of people, including his supporters, will say, well, that doesn't really bother me. That's the rich. But no, it, it's not. It's your pension plan. That impacts your your pension plan and your financial well being, and and it really is worth thinking about whether that's a great idea or not. Free speech, notwithstanding, that a, a, a one individual can have that sort of impact, particularly given that not everything that was said on Twitter was actually true or accurate. Taryn, that's right. And, you know, we can talk about the stock market and, and that's important and that impact, but it, it, it didn't stop there. So according to Sam Woolley, who's the director for propaganda research at the University of Texas, Austin Center for Media Engagement, Trump's, and this is a quote, Trump's primary use of Twitter has been to spread propaganda and manipulate public opinion. Um, and this is another quote, he used Twitter to delegitimize information or to delegitimize the positions of his opponents. So following on that, a CNBC analysis of Trump's tweets during his presidency revealed that his most popular and frequent posts largely spread disinformation and distrust. Many of his most liked tweets contain falsehoods or, let's say, misrepresentations, while the topic he posted about most frequently, fake news, was a weapon for undermining more legitimate information. It's really interesting, isn't it? And I mean, anybody who lived it probably can't forget, but of ten Trump's ten most popular tweets, four contained false claims related to the 2020 election results. Of his 100 most popular posts, 36 contained election-related falsehoods, and those 36 tweets received a collective 22.6 million likes and 3.9 million retweets. Uh, and, and that is the sort of um, results that that led the U.S. Federal Election Commission there, Ellen Weintraub, to argue that social media has no idea how seriously it's hurting democracy, and that's a direct quote from an interview with her on NPR in, in 2020. Taryn, you were in the U.S. for much of this, while I was a transfixed train wreck observer from north of the border. But what was it? What was it like? You know, actually there really immersed in, in this sort of experience? It was an interesting time to be alive. I think, you know, <laughs> we were at the time, at the time I was living in Miami and Miami is sort of its own, its own bubble in a lot of ways, but there's definitely a split in Miami and outside of Miami between Trump supporters and, and everyone else really. And I think 
Trump supporters sort of either really believed he was doing the right thing. So even if they didn't believe his individual tweets or that these were factual, they believed that there was some bigger purpose or some bigger reason that justified it. The other part of his supporters really thought that this didn't matter very much. Why are we talking about his tweets? Who cares what he's doing on social media? Let's look at you know, the job numbers and the unemployment rate. And I made more money this year than I did last year. And I paid less for gas at the pump. And then, you know, people who were not big fans of Trump were sort of looking at this and and saying, what is wrong with you? This is a big problem. There's no larger purpose. This is this is dangerous and and it's really harmful. And so we were, you know, in in an area of Miami that that was split really between all three. And, you know, our family members living living across the US were sort of scattered across all three too. And so you could have a conversation in the morning with one group of people and get one very clear specific viewpoint and then a different conversation with another group and hear a completely different version of what was happening. And then finally, in the end, a third group that that had another take completely. And you really had to read the tweets yourself to sort of parse what was actually said, what the responses were like, and and how it fit into the larger narrative. Yeah. And um, you know, I don't think any of this was was accidental, right? I mean, I I, I think that the the Republican Party in particular, but let's face it, to some degree political parties across the Western world have cottoned on to the idea that polarizing the the electorate is great, provided your part of the polarized electorate is bigger than the other guys. And, you know, these these tweets and and many other things were were polarizing um and largely as based on the evidence of the quotes we had, uh, sort of un, untrue or misleading. And one of the things that I noticed was that from the Canadian perspective and having grown up in, in the UK, where people are much less respectful of the position of, for example, prime minister. And if the prime minister is lying, the public and the media don't so much have a problem saying those are lies and this is why. But even on media, which was actually very critical of the president, there was there was seen to be an absolute absence of any willingness to call a lie a lie. And and deal with it as a deliberate falsehood. That's dangerous when you have somebody who's responsible for, you know, one of the three core pillars of the way that the US government works, head of the executive branch, and and can actually say more or less whatever he likes. And then like 20 minutes later, say something diametrically opposed if he feels like it. And, and that becomes government policy until he changes his mind again. The third pillar of, of, of government. It, it seems really weird. Does that make? Do you think that made the U.S. particularly vulnerable? The, the this lack of willingness to really go after its highest political office. That's a good question. I think. Oh, I know less about Canada because I've I've not lived there. I think compared to the U.K., in some ways, the U.S. electorate is more trusting. It's both more and less trusting of of elected officials, right? And I think. Our sort of, we nobody was ready for this kind of thing. I think in the past, politicians had used social media sparingly. Presidents before 
President Obama were fairly formal. I don't know if you remember, but there was a whole thing about the jacket choice that President Obama made. It wasn't formal enough or it wasn't the right color. I don't remember because I don't care yeah. at all. But this was a whole was news term. cycle. Where, yes. You know, yeah. Whatever it was, for a whole news cycle, it was like, oh, the you know the dignity of the office has been compromised. And so I think it meant that when President Trump was in office and started you know, tweeting things that were really out there, I think we can fairly say that, nobody was really sure what to do with it. I think some people were were genuinely shocked and thought, well, this can't be a lie because surely no president would, would do this if it weren't true. And then some people were just really not sure how to respond. Um, I think there's another group of people who just didn't want to be in his crosshairs. Having known people who have had legal dealings with him, it's not a position anybody really wants to be in. And so, you know, you are then putting a target on your back, not just with President Trump or former President Trump, but all of his followers who are not unlike some of Elon Musk's followers. And and simply by doing this series of episodes, we've now put targets on our backs um, because there are a lot of people who, you know, you can't disagree with anything that that either of these two people say without feeling like you deserve, without them feeling like you deserve consequences. Yeah, no, it's it that is that is absolutely true. And it is really fascinating. And, and we'll obviously talk a little bit more about the consequences of having a former president or even future president in control of his own social media network when we talk about new Twitters and Truth Social. But, you know, I think there's no doubt that that for a social media network focused on sharing news, Twitter became the news story for much of this period. And, you know, that it's generally not a great idea for a social media network to be the news story. I mean, I think Mark Zuckerberg has found that out and goes to great lengths to not be the news story. And, um, and you know, the consequence of this turmoil um, maybe set up Twitter for um, the eventual um, takeover by Elon Musk. But we'll talk about more of that later. Next time, we'll talk about the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk and what's happened since Musk's purchase and what the future might hold. In the meantime, we'll post a transcript of this episode with references on our website. You can find this and more information about us at thebrightapp.com. Until next time, I'm Stephen Jones. And I'm Taryn Ward. Thank you for joining us for Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. <laughs>